0: Welcome to Dragon Talk, everyone! Yay! So hey. excited for this episode of the official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by Shelley Mazenoble. Yay! Hi, Greg. Hi. We are Hi. dragons. And are. dungeons. No, we, we are. are... We're going to talk to dragons today.
1: We officially, for the first time... This the name of this podcast makes sense,
0: right? It's been a long time yeah. coming here.
1: Yeah, since we are we, actually talking dragons
0: to none other than Shelley's Echo, James Wyatt, <laughs> uh, the Draconomicon creator himself. He's written so many books around dragons for use at the Dungeons and Dragons table, and Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons is no exception other than the fact that it is chock full of creative storytelling hooks that will get your creative juices flowing for including dragons in your D&D campaign in fun and interesting ways. And I can't wait for folks to get it. Uh, it is going to be in game stores and available everywhere on October 26th. That is one week later than we had initially uh, announced. Um, there's been a lot of uh, you know, things going on in the world you may have heard about. Um, <laughs> But uh, we were uh, having to delay that for one week. Um, But that means we have one more extra week to talk about how awesome it is.
1: Yes. And we shall. And And it will be worth the wait, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. We love talking to James as always. So look for that interview coming up. And then we've got uh, some more fun news that we wanted to make sure everyone is aware of. Oh, critical role. Call of the Nether Deep.
1: Oh, you cannot resist the call of the Nether Deep.
0: It sounds weirdly enough like this.
1: Uh, yep, I'm going. Yeah, I cannot resist.
0: You're going to the Nether Deep. To the now. Nether
1: Deep. Yes, another Critical Role book. Uh, Very how fun exciting. Is that
0: there is uh, a lot of story content in this. So we have adventures. Uh, that will take players through some really fun and interesting locations as dramatized by Matthew Mercer and the rest of the Critical Role team.
1: Yes, and Mr. Chris Perkins also. So kind of a dream team.
0: Right, because James Hake also uh, is is involved in that. So we've got three Uh, previous Dragon Talk guests working together in tandem uh, to create all the fun stuff that's going to be in this book. Which has uh, uh, will be coming in March twenty twenty
1: two. Very very exciting. Um, a great book. Obviously, if you're a fan of Critical Role, even because there is just so much good story and lore uh, about these worlds for you to dig into. But also, if you're like a dungeon master and you kind of want to play with some cool story hooks designed by some of the most prolific storytellers in our little industry here, then you're going to definitely want to dig into this book because there's good stuff in here, including rival NPCs. Mm -hmm. So we'll dig into that a little bit more. But do you hear a little jets and sharks finger snapping when you read about the rival NPCs?
0: i do. I love that idea I've always had a fascination with the race kind of mechanic of like having two parties who are going after yes. the same thing. you know. I think I even designed uh with um some friends of mine for some tournament type games running at Gen Con and things where. You know that was a a, a a huge mechanic was how far you were getting ahead or behind Absolutely. this rival party. Um, super fun stuff, and I love it that that's getting codified into a tool that money people, many people, can use at the table, regardless of it being set in Exandria, like uh, all of the stuff in this Critical Role book is. Right. Yeah. Plus, you get to learn about some really cool locations. Um, So just some of them out there are the the wastes of Zorhas, this oasis city of Ankh-Harel, which is on the continent of Marquette,
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: and a sunken realm full of gloom, corruption, and sorrow known as the Neverdeep. All that just springs to mind crazy fun stories that can be told with this game.
1: And beautiful art and maps. Oh, so much art. And Devon Rue. Is making some of those maps.
0: I love that. See, re- more Dragon Talk guests. I
1: know, it's right? It all just it all stems from right here, people. Right here, the <laughs> this springboard is a hub. of creativity.
0: Uh, speaking of which, we are doing something we have never done on Dragon Talk before, which is asking you what we should do with Dragon Talk. So there's a survey that you can take. The link to it is in the show notes that you can find through the RSS feed or or wherever you're accessing Dragon Talk from now. We'd love for you to click that link and take a survey. It won't take too long, you know, 10, 20 minutes. Uh, If you're really writing in a lot of stuff, it might even take maybe a little bit more than that, but not a lot of time, but the information that you give us about your opinions on uh, our segments, on things that we talk to or about, is invaluable to us. Uh, So please, if you are a fan of the show, or even if you're not come in and give your two cents, we really need it. Uh, And we appreciate anybody who comes in to listen to us uh, all the time, but even more so to let us know uh, how we can make this show better. We're going to be running this for four weeks. uh, So, You don't have to do it right away. Uh, We'll be talking about it in the uh, couple of episodes up to come. Uh, And uh, again, tell your friends, let everybody know. And if you haven't written a review on uh, any of those platforms, uh, go ahead and do that now too. Why not? Just let spread the word around Dragon Talk.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, any other fun stuff that we wanted to talk about before we jump into a wonderful how to DM segment?
1: Let's jump in. Let's just jump right in. Let's do it. Let's just go. All right, okay. Shelley,
0: another segment. That means you're going to have to do it.
1: I, I'm ready to do it. And I'm going to talk to uh, Tim Woods, who is an absolutely fascinating, wonderful advocate for Dungeons and & Dragons and RPGs in general and is going to talk about his passion in working with schools and game-based education, which you know is a real soft spot of mine. I love this stuff too, so I'm going to dig into it a little bit more about how... Uh, D anD D and RPGs can be used as a wonderful teaching tool,
0: and start volunteering at school teaching dungeon mastering to kids. Let's
1: do it! I can't tell you how tempting that really is, except they won't, you know, let us into the school. (laughs) I know, (laughs) with with the exception of like no parents allowed anywhere near classrooms. Um, But one day when that is allowed,
0: you're gonna make it happen.
1: I'm gonna make it happen.
0: Nice. All right. Well, no adults allowed.
1: No, which is what makes D anD D cool, I guess.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's listen to Tim and hopefully get this pilot program going. Okay.
1: Welcome to How to DM. I am joined with a wonderful guest, Tim Woods. Tim is an educator, a lifelong fan of RPGs. Tim and I share a common interest. I will actually just go so far as to say it's a passion, and Mm -hmm. that is gaming and learning and seeing more of Dungeons & Dragons in schools. So, Tim, I am so excited to talk to you. Um, As we said prior to recording, there's a number of topics that I know you and I could dig into together, but this one Mm -hmm. really stood out to me because as an educator, you have actually written your phd dissertation on the connections between games and the classroom mm-hmm. and that just got me very very excited so
2: absolutely can we
1: dig in tell me what this means
2: For sure. I mean, from my perspective, it is, I feel very fortunate that it was something I kind of stumbled into. I was in a PhD program. I had very good professors and advisors who basically kind of communicated to me that like, really, unless you're writing your dissertation on something that you're really passionate about, it's incredibly difficult. Like, you've got to be excited about whatever the topic was. And after some really tough exploration, I was like, no, I think I'm really passionate about games and how they kind of apply to education games as creators creators of narrative. And my professors were very supportive. They're like, yeah, this is the fact that there wasn't that much written about it. And that this was fairly on the cusp of innovation. That was like, this is a good thing. You should write about this. And it was kind of like the more I explored this notion of like, what would role-playing games in the classroom kind of look like? The more I was like, wait a minute, what Why isn't everyone paying attention to this? Because when we as teachers state what our goals are and then look at what game masters are doing, encouraging critical thinking, creating Mm -hmm. a space for learning without it being like a linear and instructive. And then by the same token, when game masters kind of talk about what they want out of their games and why certain things are difficult, it's kind of like, well, if you approach it more like a teacher, you're going to get better results at your table. So it's kind of like game masters and educators have this strange overlap there is a space there where they are working towards very similar goals and there's a lot of opportunity for learning back and forth across those two different you know not that different i would argue mediums
3: okay. and it
2: was, it was really cool just seeing the overlap between learning and play and how fundamental that is really
1: i agree i um that's my like My son's daycare from when he was a baby, like, they their whole philosophy was, like, play-based learning. And so, like, he's just always—it's never—even, like, the preschool part was always, like, set up for, like, the play, but, like, they're—you know, it was— and it was so cool. And I, you can actually see a 100%. difference in those kids that, that come up through the play-based learning. But then I, it stops. And it stops.
2: And so you're hitting on something I love as a point, <laughs> which is when you watch kids and how they learn, they learn. And th- th- I'm so glad you th- your son was a part of a program that supported this because I think not enough young students are in programs that recognize kids learn primarily through play. And why do they play? Primarily, I argue, for the function of learning. Play and learning are just intrinsically woven. When you try to do one without the other, you end up, it's like trying to drive with the emergency brake on It's like engagement isn't just a nice idea for bringing people into the classroom. It is fundamentally necessary. And we see it when we watch kids. And then we say, oh, but they're not really learning. Learning is when you get put into rows and listen as information is just hurled in your direction. It's like, really actually, is that learning? Or is it much more fundamentally when you are experimenting with the physics of a situation or just the, the uh, different elements, whatever they may be.
1: Right. And like, and also with, that type of learning that is like there's one textbook and these are the problems that Mm -mm. every kid must solve on there and not like there I know there's always that desire for teachers to meet their students where they're at but they don't often have the curriculum or the tools or the resources or the time to actually dedicate to doing that but there's a number of reasons why and don't get me started on that but absolutely that that just but back to the having Dungeons and Dragons or RPGs or gaming in general in classrooms, you hit. Well, first of all, what what do you teach? I forgot to ask you what you're. So-
2: my background is in education in English and writing primarily. Okay. But at this point, I don't teach classes in schools. I run after school programs for oh, students okay. where we are just doing role playing game based learning, essentially. And so using Dungeons and Dragons gotcha. and other RPGs as a way to, I argue, kind of construct a curriculum. Ultimately, it's exactly like you're saying these games meet students where they are at. So yes. I think there's immense learning happening. But day to day, I don't know what we're going to learn and what we're going to talk about. Very often, it's led by the students in terms of what will we learn through RPGs on a given day.
1: Right, which is also you know, very empowering for the kids. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, they do best when they don't realize that they are learning something. <laughs> Absolutely. Inherent in the game.
2: It's inherent. And, And I think even like there's the element of like, oh, I don't want to be tricked or something. It's like, no, no, no. Learning is fun when it's done correctly. And that's like, it doesn't have to be a deception. Like I enroll the kids in the idea that like, yeah, we're learning. It just is fun. Also, it's both of those things at the same time. And like, probably when you play video games you don't even know how much you're learning and then i get to watch their heads kind of turn like wait i'm learning from video um, yeah. games too and i'm like you better believe you are absolutely
1: right right so you also mentioned which i i love is the idea of teachers as game masters and how there is so much of that overlap so let's expand on that but even like take it a step further that for any educators or you know anybody who's a- around kids in general that wants to incorporate some RPG action into their lives. Um numerous benefits, even if you're like not trying to do it for the learning. But there's always we all know there's benefits to role playing games. Absolutely. So how how do I uh how do you place some of those game master qualities um in the role of teacher or educator?
2: I mean, the way I look at it is when you talk, I was lucky to get to work at the university I was at doing my PhD at St. John's. I kind of started really working with the education department and realizing that when we talk about like the real lofty goals we have in education, they are much broader than this kind of banking model of like, I have information, all I need to do is get this X amount of information into your brain. However we do that, it doesn't, and it's like, no, that's not really how learning takes place, and when teachers are really trying to aspire for the best kind of learning, it's very tough to pin down because it's like, well, we need a space. It's going to be student-led. It's going to encourage critical thinking. We're going to get through certain ideas, but also it will meet them where they're at. It will pace along with them. And I'm like, yeah, we have systems that do that. They are called games. Like Games (laughs) very often are scaffolded perfectly. Because if you have a game that's too tough to learn or too easy, people just don't play it. And so there is an incentive when you are designing any kind of game system to make it this perfectly scaffolded experience that, like, no matter how good the game master or teacher person is, they can kind of use this system to sort of do everything the best way that we kind of can. And the players will go through it slowly or quickly, depending on how well they are mastering the various elements of that system. And I mean, when you look at these games, they are, they are structured in ways that are highly educational inherently, they're designed to teach themselves. And then when teachers kind of take games and then observe, oh, they're really doing well in the classroom, it's like, well, yeah, because this system has been honed down to a knife's edge in terms of promoting flow, in terms of promoting that idea of, I feel like I'm learning something, it's challenging, but at the same time, I know what I'm doing here. It's like that surfing element of like, I'm not pitching too far forward or too far back. It's a balance and it's a delicate one, but games are already engineered to do that. And if you watch how a game master kind of has to take role-playing games and be like, well, for this group, I have to tweak it. This way and emphasize this a little bit more. You're doing game design literally with and in front of people. And that's a great way to kind of view teaching. It's like a you're you're running a game in this classroom, one way or another. You have certain goals and you're trying to get the students on your side, like a game master is trying to get the players on their side in order to promote this goal that we all have together. Um, when a teacher's mentality is like, I gotta make these people do this stuff, it's very similar to when a game game masters like I have to make them do this it's like well you're stealing a lot of the fun out of the choice and the leading stuff and I I continually learn more about how to teach better from watching adults and kids play RPGs and recognizing when I should back off when I should lay it on a little bit thicker and help guide them um it's it's not easy but the intuitive skills I pick up as a game master are definitely informative to the classroom regardless of what those lessons might be.
1: And one of the things that I think a, a really good game master, dungeon master does is recognizes the different personality types at the table and always yes. finds those little ways to like, like we were saying earlier, meet the player or the student where they're at. Finding a way, like a shyer player who maybe is like not that comfortable with role playing yet, then finding a way to bring them uh, into the game. By like You found this letter, like just tell we re, read the letter out loud. So now they're a part of the the game but they don't have to think and, and be uh do like improvisational skills that might be scary for them. Absolutely. Um, and teachers like that's a skill. So the, I'm now I'm kind of thinking like we should teach teachers how to be dungeon masters.
2: <laughs> That's because... a huge part of my argument is like, <laughs> if teachers would take some time to game master, you'd learn a lot of cool skills uh, for implementing in the classroom. And game masters who feel like they struggle at the table, maybe observe how teachers kind of approach yes. their styles. And that will really help you at the table, especially when it comes to bringing in those new people who are a little bit harder to enroll yeah. in the game. You've got to realize you can't, upload too much information all at once it needs to be paced and scaffolded and broken
1: up a little bit so i would i can imagine that some teachers might say like, like oh D in the classroom cool that could be like a reward for mm-hmm. my students doing but like i think that it can go beyond it sure use it as a reward that's a great reward but Absolutely, yeah. also like you could just there are so many parts of dungeons and dragons that are just Learning, like yes. you get a kid who's like, I don't really like writing. Well, mm-hmm. okay, how about let's let's create a character. Yeah, and like, guess what? Like, what's where's your character from? What's your character's you know, uh, what's their family like? Do they have mm-hmm. any weapon? Like tell me about this magic item that you found. And, you know, maybe it, that... The
2: investment is what leads them to get excited about the, the skill that they're maybe yeah on a little bit. And now it
1: doesn't feel so much like writing. And you know mm-hmm. what? Great, that's just one assignment and you've sparked some interest and maybe they are really excited about um, playing a wizard, this wizard that they mm-hmm. created, and now maybe they've decided... Uh, a reluctant reader is now like, all right, maybe I... I'm interested in Harry Potter or something, you know. It's just, it can, the the cycle is endless. It's just like one inspiring cycle after another. You can branch.
2: you can definitely oh. branch up into secondary secondary learning for sure. I love that you used writing as an example because, of course, for my part, I loved writing as a kid. I struggled yeah. with math. And Me Dean too. has everything. It has so many different things for different people. And it's not even designed to be that broad for that many different educational spheres. It's just doing that accidentally. It's falling into so many different interdisciplinary studies. And I, to my mind, what I love when I run it for students in particular, is very often I'm working with students, especially in different schools where it'll be students with special learning needs or students who are somewhere on yeah. the spectrum. I find that they are getting the rules, whether they be the math or the writing elements, the concrete parts, they can get very quickly, much quicker than me. Within an hour, they're like telling me the rules of the game, but where they're struggling maybe more is with the social skills. Yep, yep. And D&D has so many social skills baked in into it inherently, My favorite quotes are Gary Gygax being like, uh, you can play the game alone. The game's designed to slowly teach you why that's a bad idea. And it's <laughs> not even designed to do it. It just will do that as a function. Because guess what? That's true about life too. So it a- accidentally got baked into d d You cannot go it alone. You need people with complementary skills. If you're a fighter, you need the wizard. If you're the cleric, you need a whole team to protect you. And so it shows these kind of like pros and cons what people are different people are kind of bringing to the table and really kind of teaches powerful lessons along those lines it's so cool to see what people take away from the game and i generally as a teacher i'm not enforcing those lessons very heavy-handedly because they emerge so naturally it'll be like oh you you don't like what they're doing so you're going to veer off from the rest of the team okay cool you can do that. And I wouldn't even dissuade that at all. But a matter oh, there's only a certain amount of time before they're like, man, it's hard to do this on my own. A dungeon by myself. Oh, man, yeah. this is this is I'm in over my head sooner or later. They start to then negotiate with the other students. And it's so cool to see students go from being very rigid thinking in terms of like, I know what the right move is here, Tim, and you know what the right move is. Now make him do the right move. And I'm like, if only life were that easy, right? So instead, since you can't make them do what you want them to do, how are you going to handle this? Are you going to encourage them? Are you going to get angry with them? How are we going to, you know, what tools are we going to break out for negotiating? And it's so cool to see like deals start getting made. Are you helping yeah. with this? I'll help you with that. And we'll both get somewhere, even if we're not getting a lot. Li- and it's like really cool to see the social learning, I think, is the most powerful learning. And I'd say it's just for the kids, but that's not true. I have plenty of adults who are like, man, wait, the group won't do what I say, but it was a great idea. And I'm like, hmm, it's like, these are these are tough things to communicate. And I, you have my sympathy, as it were, as a game master. I'm also <laughs> guiding people and watching people not take cues. And I just kind of step back and let things play out as they do.
1: Yeah, that's definitely good life lessons. And, you know, that social emotional learning is so important right now, especially given Mm. the year and a half that these kids have been through and not in school and not in person and just not, you know, having those social interactions. So I think um, it's it's especially the skills like empathy and collaboration, like the stuff that's really hard to teach. Absolutely. It's just it just comes naturally for these kids
2: just running an after school class today. I'm like, yeah, we, we it's relatively new for these kids to be in a physical environment with each other, not running into the classic Zoom problems of like, oh, let me we, we all yeah. got to hesitate before we talk so that somebody gets to say something. And now they're in the physical space. The inclination is, oh, well, we can we can talk over each other. And it's like, oh, yeah, we got but. Will the game be still playable if we get too chaotic and finding that negotiation is is very tough, but it's like great skill building for right now.
1: Definitely. So do you have what was it easy for you to get the support of the administrators and the other educators at the school that you're running this program at?
2: surprisingly easy. That's what I would want teachers to have as a takeaway was, first of all, at the university level, I was like very hesitant to be like, you know, part of my dissertation was I was teaching writing classes and really trying to Push the limit on like you know how gamified can I make this classroom? And I had really full support at the university level. People were very open to trying stuff out in the writing classroom, especially the writing, or the freshman writing classroom is a big space where people are trying to iron out what is the perfect way to teach that. And I'm like, well, if this is an open space, let's really experiment with it. But when I run my after-school programs, um, I'm I'm really happy to say that uh, at the uh, elementary and junior high level. What's going on, I observe, is that teachers who don't know about these games and the administrators who don't know about the games, they are like okay, the kids love these and we don't know why. And there's not really enough. Every now and then, if you're very lucky, there'll be a teacher or two or three in the school who know enough about D&D that they can start the program. Or if you're really lucky, the kids will kind of do it on their own, but there's, there's reasons why that can be a little tough to sustain and keep going. So I kind of approach schools. I kind of let them know what my background is in education. And I'm happy to say that very often when it's the school where they're like, okay, we have so many kids who want to, do this and just nobody in the school is fulfilling this role they are very eager to kind of bring somebody in who can channel this like i advertise it as being like okay if you if the kid likes video games but you maybe want them away from the screen right d like this is it, baby. And like just that, those two sales points are more than enough for most parents because we have, of course, so many students who are passionate about these games. The parents are very good these days about not wanting to just inherently say like, no video games, too addictive, like this can be very over. And there's a side to that for sure, where it can be very difficult for the students to kind of modulate the amount of influence those games have over them. But there's something being learned there and there's a Passion, And it's good to not just stifle that. But I also got to agree the impulse to maybe step away from the screen and play games that I know these kids are going to enjoy, but will emphasize more of the face to face social communication skills there's something really important there that is really good, especially for kids who are doing a lot of digital gaming. I love digital gaming, but I don't know that the spaces that are created are always the healthiest spaces. I think when you have the anonymity, that can encourage one kind of behavior. And when you're face-to-face with five friends who you know very well, who you're going to see day after day, and you want to keep coming back to D&D Club, that's a huge element of the meta metagame. It's like, we want to do what we want to do in the game, but we also want to get invited back and in digital games that's plays out one way but in the school after school program you watch kids make different decisions because they know that they want to have a good relationship with the other students that they're going to keep doing this campaign with so it's really cool to see the differences and how it encourages different kinds of gameplay
1: It's amazing because, like, hearing you say like they're do they're making these like maybe better choices because they want to keep coming back and playing the game. But in like reality, you're also just like not being a jerk, and that's all it is. Is just like
2: (laughs) don't be a jerk, and you'll get invited back to D and D
1: in life. (laughs) Like like right now, like you know, like yeah, it's D and D club after school. Mm -hmm. But like years from now, like you might get hired for a job, or you might, you know. Meet the person that you end up marrying. Like you're, you're not just going to be an, a jerk.
2: Absolutely, it, it actually blew my mind because only this year did I hear somebody kind of synthesize the thought that like every game has the meta game of you want to keep playing the game. So it's why uh, in professional soccer people don't cheat because you will get kicked out of the league. Then it's like we don't cheat in all these games because we want to keep playing. We yeah. don't act like a jerk at the table, ideally, because you want to keep playing. And uh, you know, it can be a thing in the community where it's like, but I followed the rules. I'm allowed to be a jerk it's like you can follow the rules of DD, but if you're a jerk no one cares whether you follow the rules you won't get invited back and that doesn't just apply to games that applies as you're saying to everything everything in life is like that
1: yes so you don't be a jerk Mm -hmm. um so what what are you finding like the recruitment is like for these kids and like are they do they already know what DD is or do they just hear words dungeons dragons yeah, that sounds good. Or are they I, just like, my my parents say, I can't come home after school, I have to do something. <laughs>
2: we definitely have some of those kids, and they're kind of like, well, this wasn't the kind of game I thought. And like, <laughs> there's definitely a certain sense of like, um, uh, uh, I'll say this, most of the students at this point do come in with kind of an understanding about D&D. And that's exciting, actually. It's hitting a younger and younger yeah. age, every year, which just speaks to, like, we are at the peak popularity once again. It has never been bigger. And there have been different times in history where d d has never been bigger. And it's always been true, but it's happening again, where, again, we've hit a bigger peak. And not only do I say more more than 50% of my students will come in with some familiarity with d d very often at that age, it's a very, like, loosey-goosey, like, they don't necessarily know the rules, but they know what we're trying to... Uh, kind of trying to accomplish here. But what I find fascinating is even when I first started doing this in the classroom, it was so shocking to see how quickly students who knew nothing about D&D, no background in this, understood concepts like That's my character, an avatar, we might say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe 10 years before I started doing this, that wouldn't have been a universal concept, but video games entering the firm mainstream did something where it doesn't even matter if they play video games or not. Everybody understands. Every kid in the world kind of is like, "Oh yeah, that's somebody's character." I get this concept sort of. It's it was abstract, and now like they've kind of seen some example of it somewhere. The idea of I'm going to enter the role of somebody in this context, and then when the game is over, I'm out of that role. That I wouldn't have thought of that as a universal concept, and now it sort of has become one. The idea of stats, and that when you play a character you are inherently going to be teaming up with people that you are balanced with and you're trying to figure out where your niche is in the group kids are just understanding like oh i'm the guy who casts spells from the back i got it i've played a game like that it's like beautiful that D has it trickled into so many other games, but then it ends up like the river feeds back, as it were. And yeah. it's definitely to my benefit to have kids coming in, just being like, "Oh, I thought I didn't know D and D," and I'm like, "You know more about it than you realize, right?" And they're like, "Yeah, kind of. Like a lot of this is fairly intuitive. I've played something like this before." And it's like, "Yep, yeah, because you played a role playing game, and a lot of these branch out from from the the granddaddy, as it were."
1: Yeah, right. So, all right, what what would be your advice for uh, teachers who may want to incorporate D&D somehow into their learning, into their school, into their class? Absolutely.
2: I mean, I think the best and easiest way to do it is if you can start an after-school program. I know that when it comes to the you know strict curriculum guidelines and stuff, it really depends on the school how easily you're going to be in, able to insert it into a classroom. But after-school programs offer a lot of leeway. And I just think that, you know, when I've run my classrooms and then run after-school classrooms based on games, uh, especially when I was uh, abroad teaching like English as a second language, the differences oh. in effect That is a big one, a big area, I think, where it's like, yeah, of course, engagement would get people more excited. You see people learn much more quickly when it's through entertaining venues. That's the best way to kind of perform language acquisition. And so when I ran the after school programs, it was just stark the difference, uh, how effective they were versus my ordinary classrooms. And so... I think after school programs are a great place to start. And then I've seen many teachers doing more innovative things than I've ever done to bring RPGs into the classroom, such as there are technological options. I am blanking on the name, but I think it's called Classroom Quest or something along those lines, I'm sure, because this was like probably five years ago, I remember this one. I'm sure there are new models out there, especially post-COVID. I would Mm -hmm. have to think that there's many tools online that are available for people to kind of gamify. The classroom and I, uh, I have a harder answer than just say a harder way of framing it than just saying be creative in whatever way you think is is best and allow the students to maybe have fun getting in on the game design in the sense that you present something and then when they start to come up with their own rules, don't just go along with it. Encourage it. Encourage the idea of like kind of framing it as like here's the rules. And then if you think you have better rules, let's talk. That's a great way to frame a lot of activities, honestly, especially in the classroom. But um, making sets of game rules, basing them off of RPGs and kind of letting students um, maybe have characters through which they work and accomplish their various goals. It's really up to you how much you want to follow RPG guidelines and how much you want to follow traditional classroom guidelines. They're slightly modified in RPG sorts of ways. Um, I tend to use just RPGs and then educate using the RPGs as we go. But I know that for a lot of teachers, there would be more strict curriculum requirements and you kind of have to figure out ways to fit the RPG so that it's still accomplishing all the kind of linear goals that very often are being asked of the the teacher. Um, But ideally, I would say that, you know, when I look at what we're trying to accomplish in the classroom, it's kind of like the more we move away from those strict curriculum requirements and the more we move into like the idea of the students guiding the curriculum, I think that's ultimately going to present better results at the end of the day. So I'm kind of encouraging people to do what you think is best and tell me the results, because honestly, I'm I'm thinking that people are going to innovate in ways I can't even imagine in the near future.
1: Well, D&D kind of just fosters that innovation and inspiration and education.
2: It absolutely does.
1: Oh, I feel like I could talk to you about this all day. Likewise. Um, (laughs) um, And I would like to continue our conversation um, about this and about other topics as well. But you clearly are... um, passionate and a wealth of information on this topic. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, where can people find you online and and find out more about the great work you're doing and any advice that you have
2: Absolutely. My website, Tim Woods, T-I-M-M woods.com. That's where you can find all the collected information about me, any articles that have been linked to me, uh, my information on my publications, which I do have right here. I have a right. book of random tables uh, directed at cities and towns and an upcoming book of random tables for dungeons, so you'll be able to get the whole set. But they are all random tables designed for game masters to either inspire themselves or make up stuff on the spot. Very often I observe D&D groups are like going into cities and just being like, cool, we're going to go to this theater. You were ready to present a theater for us, right? Or like, we're going to the <laughs> bank. You were ready to do a trip to the bank today, right? Or what's across the street from the tavern? We don't care. We're going to rob it. Well, all those questions <laughs> yeah. can get answered in the book of random tables, cities and towns. You can kind of fill in the blank. It is
1: such a good idea. Players won't
2: catch you by surprise. And uh, if people are excited about the Green Knight film that was recently released by A24, I got to kind of be the designer for the Green Knight RPG. A very kind of uh, morality and ethics based mechanic system kind of based around concepts of honor and I think that if people enjoyed the movie or enjoy the story of the Green Knight, they're really going to enjoy the RPG that it's kind of based uh, that uh, we we have based around it.
1: That's so cool. That's awesome. So you can, people can find out more about uh, those two two products by going to your website. Go to
2: my website, TimWoods.com
1: Okay, and you also have you're also at Tim Woods on Twitter as well. On
2: Twitter and and on Instagram as and well. the
1: Instagram. I love when it's the same across all absolutely. platforms.
2: It's, I got very lucky. Absolutely got it across the board. It's, it's for that sure. double
1: M that saved absolutely you. made it easy for <laughs> sure. For
3: sure.
1: <laughs> oh, amazing! Okay. Thank you so much for being my guest. Absolutely, and, thank you, um, Shelley. I foresee you and I talking in the future.
2: That would be wonderful. I feel like we definitely have a lot more to say. For sure, we do.
1: For sure. Thank you, Tim. It's
2: my pleasure. Thanks.
0: I like Tim. What a wonderful gentleman. Right
1: inspiring. I think this whole episode is just going to be inspiring. That's the right. word of the day.
0: If this uh, episode was a white woman's Instagram post, it would be an apple with the word inspire behind it.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a reference, of course, to Bo Burnham's Inside uh, the song White Woman's Instagram Sending up all of the uh, the, the amazing uh, posts that we all do, <laughs> including me. Nice. <laughs> awesome. Well, get ready to be even more inspired about dragons of every variety with the dragon great worm himself, James Wyatt. <laughs> Let's welcome James Wyatt to Dragon Talk. Yes, welcome, James. James. Yeah. I love
4: James Thanks. Wyatt. Yeah, Biggest <laughs>
1: fan. Woo! Wow. <laughs> James Wyatt fan club in the house today. Although uh, I think I'm your biggest fan, don't you? Probably. <laughs> There's no question.
4: I mean, is anybody
1: more excited to see you walking down the hallway than me? When we used to be able to walk down hallways near each other? Only my dog. Oh. Oh (laughs) Tough competition, a dog. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now you just got to start barking when you see James next.
1: (laughs) 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 James Wyatt! That's what your dog would say if your dog could talk. James Wyatt! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's what i used to say to him i used to scare the crap out of him i don't know why we just get really excited to see you like oh my god it's james wyatt it's amazing it's a fine thing yeah
0: it's worth it it's worth it well i'm excited to talk to you uh as always uh because i'm sure we're going to get into some fun discussions around fizz treasury of dragons Coming out now on October 26th, uh, in case you didn't hear any of the news, we have delayed the release for one week. That means we have one more extra week to prepare Mm. for all the awesomeness in this tome.
1: Oh my gosh. We had to. That's why we had to delay it. We were like, (laughs) I don't think the people are ready for this yet. There's too much good stuff in here. I heard there were goblins involved. Definitely.
0: It's true. Probably should have been kobolds now in hindsight.
1: I was thinking the same thing. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe Cobalt's the kobolds would have... the... Oh yeah. the protests. I yep. could see that. Yeah. I was going to say maybe the kobolds were trying to help it like come out even earlier and the goblins were the ones. So, maybe they're jealous. Maybe. maybe it's like they're like we don't need any more dragon books, okay? We need some goblin books. Where is the treasury of goblins? <laughs>
0: It's coming. It's coming. I mean,
1: where?
4: It's a very it's slim tome. <laughs> <James>. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> <I'm
0: kidding. laughs>
1: your book's gonna be even later now. Oh no! <laughs> You've made them mad. Uh,
0: Maglubiet is mad now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, James, where I? Where do you even start with this book? I mean. I feel like there's a little bit of pressure here because we are Dungeons and Dragons. And this is a book about pretty iconic characters in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Dragons?
4: Yeah. The good news is I didn't have to think about Dungeons at all. I could just set that aside. (laughs) Clear your mind. Yep. Mm, That's maybe
0: true. (laughs) I was just going to say, I beg to differ. (laughs) A big part of this book is about the dungeons in which dragons reside.
4: Oh, yeah. So, wow. Um, I mean, where where I started, I, I had a leg up in that uh, while I was still working on the magic team before I transitioned back last October, um, the, the D&D studio leadership team was already thinking about this book and working on the beginnings of an outline um, that Ray Winninger actually put together and handed to me when I started. So
1: um, mm-hmm.
4: some of the sort of foundational ideas were already in there and waiting for me to build on them. Um, but I also joke about how this is the the third, third, at least the third all dragon but all the time book that I worked on in my twenty one years at wizards. So um, I had a lot of experience to draw on, uh, thinking about what what people actually want to know about dragons, what's useful in the game, especially that what what really helps the DM. Um, bring dragons to life at the table, as opposed to, you, you know, do you need to delve into the minutia of mating rituals or stuff like mm-hmm. that? Not necessarily. It's not necessarily going to help you tell a better story. I, I guess it could.
1: It depends on your story, I guess. I, I guess. Anyway,
4: okay. so um, that focus on Inspiring ideas for the gaming table is really what drove the whole thing. What
0: well, were the previous books here? you worked on? Dragonomicon. And... So I worked on
4: the third edition Dragonomicon, and then there were two fourth edition Dragonomicons: one for chromatic mm-hmm. dragons and one for metallic dragons. I think, I think that by that point, I was like a manager, so my my influence on those two books was pretty light, but pretty sure I'm there in the credits. <laughs> Pretty sure. pretty
0: sure. You go back and look. It. Yeah. Well, I, I I love that there's, uh, you know, in addition to having all the information for Dungeon Masters, there's a lot of player-centric uh, information in this book uh, for, for playing Dragonborn of different ilks. I mean, you know, you're talking about previous Wizards credit. I think the only game design credit that I have for Wizards uh, in my previous life was a article in uh, d and Insider around Metallic Dragonborn. Uh, okay, and so I'm interested in this uh, you know, because it's bringing some of this to life uh, for fifth edition, which is really exciting.
4: Yeah, um, so we have the three new dragonborn races in here that are uh, a variant version of the the player's handbook dragonborn, um, that are chromatic, metallic, and gem dragonborn, and the super special thing about them is that they can use their breath weapon as a as a, an attack rather than as an action. So um, fun. I have a story from playing 4th edition. Um, my mm. wife played a Dragonborn character once and there was a time when they were facing a bunch of small, weak monsters, go- goblins or kobolds or something, and she used her breath weapon. So for the 4th edition Dragonborn, it was a minor action. Mm. so she breathed she took out a bunch of these and then she's like that was my minor action (laughs) and she went off and did more cool things so (laughs) that that kind of was um uh, a beacon in my mind guiding me now i didn't have a whole lot to do with designing the the dragon porn in in his bands um but I, i was certainly on board with the yes let's let them breathe and do cool stuff at least at higher levels so that's that's what's awesome about them Plus, then, on top of the that mechanical tweak, um, there's an additional layer that helps them feel like more a part of the chromatic family or the metallic family or the gem family, which is what you were talking about, Greg. Um, yeah. Where they get a little extra layer uh, as they uh, go up in levels.
0: I love that. I love how there's, like, you know... Because Dragonborn, for me, was very much a... Uh, um, uh, uh, a race that was super uh, tied to these these iconic creatures, um, but in play that 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 tie didn't show up always. And so I love that now you have this lineage of like where they've come from that you know feels just as integrated with the lore and, and background of the game, like uh, you know like um, high elves and wood elves do, right? Like yeah, I feel like there's that that level of um, flavor and character now with dragonborn.
4: Yeah, and that's the thing that um, for all of the player content in this book, that um, sort of the the common thread or the guiding principle there is, how do you make a character that feels tied to the story that we're unfolding in this book? How do you make a character that's part of the story? Um, whether that's at, at a really deep mechanical level with a Dragonborn character or a one of the new subclasses, the monk or the ranger subclasses we've got in here, or at a very sort of surface um, flavor level, right? You can say I'm a war cleric. Um, you know, war, the war is the divine domain that I choose, but I worship Bahamut. So my power is ultimately derived from a dragon and mm. I can add that flavor layer, almost a cosmetic layer to my character. Um, and still then the rest of the book is going to help you get a sense of how you fit into the d d multiverse because of that relationship. Um, I'm kind of hooked on the idea of playing a, a warlock with an archfey patron where the archfey is a moonstone dragon, which is mm. a, a new kind of dragon introduced in the book, um, where again, you're taking something that is not inherently draconic, but adding that dragon flavor on top of it and maybe getting a pointy hat in the bargain that that <laughs> matches the, the moonstone Dragon's horn.
1: I mean, why not? So Seriously. When you were talking about the um with the Dragonborns and how they have a tie to or there there's a layer that ties them to their ancestry, is that when um, I was looking at the section about chromatic Dragonborns? And how you can roll on the table. You know I love a, a table. Like, I have never met a table Good. that I'm not we just going to roll. Tables
4: for you in this book.
1: <laughs> that is, I remember talking to you about the, all the tables in the book and being very excited about it. But so you can roll, you can choose your chromatic um, ancestor, and pick one, and then roll on the table. And they, that grants you um, a special magical affinity. What does this mean?
4: the uh, i'm trying to remember what you're talking about so okay. th-
1: there is so if, a if you choose one chromatic dragon on the table page 10 for for your reference
4: you wait Good. you actually have
1: a copy like a hard I, copy
4: I, no, no no this is my ipad
1: oh <laughs> i was like damn hand it over uh,
4: <laughs> Shelly's going to your house.
1: I'll be right there.
0: And she'll be saying,
1: hey, James Wyatt. James Wyatt. <laughs> and barking. And my dog will be barking. Yes. <laughs> just, you won't be able to tell the difference between each of us. Okay. <laughs> so then uh, this determines the damage type for your other traits.
4: Right. So you're not actually rolling on a table. You choose one of the five chromatic types. Oh, that's types. true. And I mean, you could roll if you wanted to. I would
1: probably do the, it anyway. I'll find a sure. way. Sure. Um, <laughs>
4: And that determines the the damage type that your breath weapon deals and the damage that you are resistant to um, or that your chromatic warding can make you immune to on a short-term basis. So it, it's just correlating the, the kinds of, of chromatic dragons with their traditional breath weapons.
1: Now, did you say a chromatic warden? Warding. Warding. That's
4: the, the fifth-level feature that Uh, chromatic dragonborn get, where uh, as an action, they can become immune to the damage type associated with their chromatic ancestry um, Uh, basically once per day. Sweet.
1: That sounds fun. So uh, James is like, hmm. Um, And then one of the other things that I know people were really excited to hear about was that the gem dragons were brought back. Indeed. So what was that uh process like? Did you just like dust off some of the old lore around the gem dragons and just refresh it a little? Or was it just like starting from scratch? Or how do you how do you do something like that? Pretty much the former. Um
4: oh. so I've had a, a special place in my heart for the gem dragons since 1980. Mm -hmm. Because I still remember getting that Dragon magazine in the mail with where they first appeared with the title, that's not in the monster annual exclamation point. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, 1980, it was kind of a big deal to introduce not just a new monster, because Dragon did that on a regular basis, but a a new category of monsters. And, you know, they're, they're significant because... The, the mythology of dragons is such an important part of the game. The, the yeah. chromatic and metallic split is, is a foundational to the D&D mythology and sort of inserting another family in there is, is pretty world-shaking. Um, so they showed up in Dragon Magazine in, in 1980. They were in the second edition Monstrous Manual um, and they appeared in the third edition Monster Manual too. And then they've been hiding for like 19 years now <laughs>
1: so oh my gosh it's been that long
4: it has it was 2002 monster annual two came out oh wow um and we never brought them into fourth edition so uh there was never like a huge amount of lore about them there there's just kind of the normal information that you give about a dragon what their personalities are like the kind of uh terrain that they like to build their layers in and that sort of thing. Um, and then the, the story of Sardior, the ruby dragon, because of course a family of dragons needs to have its divine patron. Um, so in this book, we were able to sort of fold Sardior in with the Bahamut and Tiamat story and um, make the gem dragons, a uh, what I think is a really interesting part of the 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 myth of the material plane that we're weaving here. um, That, how deep do I want to go into this? Do I want to go deep into this? Yes.
1: Uh, Yeah, okay.
0: (laughs) This is is the time. This is Dragon Talk. We're supposed to be talking about dragons.
1: Get in there, James Wyatt. All
4: right, Dragon Talk. So the first pages of the book introduce this um, draconic poem called Elegy for the First World. So hilarious thing is Ray's outline gave me the, the title, Elegy for the First World, as the title for the first chapter of the book. I used it as the title for this poem, and I wrote an epic poem because Mythic Odysseys of Theros gave me the crazy idea that I could do this. Um, <laughs> um, it's, so it's it's a, a myth. It might or might not have any basis in reality. But it talks about Bahamut and Tiamat um, working together to create the first world. the first world we've alluded to in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything as the the primordial form of the material plane. And that somehow early on in its history, it um, broke apart into the zillions, uncounted multitudes of worlds that we know as the material plane now. So Everon and the Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk and Dragonlance and and Dark Sun and um, Birthright, all these worlds and you know, your campaign world are all um, splinters or fragments or seedlings or refractions, refractions uh, distortions, echoes of this primordial first world. So according to that myth, um, when the first world was destroyed, Sardior was destroyed with it. But the gem dragons believe that, so Sardior worked with Bahamut to make the metallic dragons, and he worked with Tiamat Sardior worked with Tiamat to create the Chromatic Dragons, um, but then when Sardior was destroyed with the First World, Sardior's consciousness was splintered into the Gem Dragons, or that's what mm. the Gem Dragons say. So that that sort of um, it, it sort of accounts for their psionic ability, in my mind, that that Sardior is this wisdom figure, this um, intellect who worked with Bahamut and Tiamat to create the dragons at the dawn of time. And it's his mind that is, I keep saying his, and I think we avoided pronouns for Sardior entirely. Um, Mm -hmm. So Sardior's mind was splintered into all the gem dragons, and that's why they're psionic. That's why they are um, more prone to developing dragon sight that allows them to connect with their echoes on other worlds. Um, and it just gives them an, a neat place in the multiverse. and I just completely ran out of steam talking about that Whew. <laughs> no worries
0: take a break because I I'm love, love I, I love that that also uh, you could argue is a reason why they're not on every material plane world as well like they are a little bit more elusive because they're not bound to that diametrically opposed thing of Bahamut versus Tiamat and they're just Echoes of the consciousness of of one large deity, Uh, and so you know that 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 accounts for their rareness as well.
4: You could certainly make that point, but I want them to be on every D anD D world now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I will remove that point because now with this book, (laughs) they should be in every single campaign.
1: Yes, you have made it so. You mentioned the echoes, and I think we have to talk about that. Because that was a concept that blew my mind when you first talked about it.
4: Good. That's the goal. Um, So, yeah, I don't want to put too much weight on this because really it's kind of like a a minor theme that runs through the book. Um, Just showing up here and there. And DMs are free to take it and run with it or read it and say, ha, that's cute, and ignore it. Um, Hmm. I hope they take it and run with it. But it's not like um, it needs to become a central focus of your campaign it's totally a central focus of my campaign because i love this stuff Um, (laughs) be (laughs) um, like james so it's this idea that every because dragons are were created with the first world and they're so intricately connected to the fabric of the first world uh, and the fabric of the material plane um when the first world was fragmented or uh burst into seedlings or whatever um Every dragon has an echo on every other world in the material plane. So Klauth in the Forgotten Realms might have an echo on Eberron, who might be another ancient red dragon very similar to Klauth. Or it could be a completely different uh, emerald dragon um, on Eberron. They're bound together by fate in some very indistinct way. And if if one of these Klaus developed his dragon sight, um, they could forge a connection. They could start to communicate with each other. They could coordinate their plans across multiple worlds. They could theoretically eventually fuse together. Although if they were red and emerald, I don't know what they'd be. And that's cool. Right. Um, oh yeah, they're red and emerald because Cloud lives in volcanic mountains on the Forgotten Realms, but lives in the dead volcano in Eberron. And anyway.
1: Um. I love that been in a campaign right before our eyes <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah That's what happens
4: whenever i talk about this book right i just go, oh here's another it's inspiring idea. um so yeah but, so it's this theme running through the book that um you might end up interacting with a dragon who is aware of echoes and other worlds you might when you kill a dragon or somehow inherit part of a dragon's power you might start developing an awareness of of other worlds as well an echo of dragon sight um you might be in the middle of a fight with an adventure with a with a dragon and suddenly get transposed into a different world and be fighting a different dragon at the same moment while the people who were fighting that dragon are now fighting the dragon you left behind just it's an opportunity to to do crazy magical fantastical stuff which it turns out is really fun to do in a fantasy game.
1: (laughs) Go figure. Yeah. uh, Okay, okay, okay. So, all of the the different echoes, and so are you always aware, or could you just be a dragon that's just spent their entire life never knowing about these echoes?
4: Most dragons never develop an awareness. They never know they're there. Right. Yes. So, um, we talk about how it's mostly it's ancient dragons who develop this ability, but um, gem dragons are more prone to it than other dragons, again, because of the whole Sardior thing. Um, Mm -hmm. That there are organizations of dragons across the worlds that uh, strive to cultivate this, this awareness among other dragons, almost like, well, it's kind of an apocalyptic cult of dragons who want to see the first world restored, and so they cultivate Dragon Sight and believe that Bahamut and Tiamat will someday come and Remake everything back to the way it used to be,
0: and that's a different organization Aww. than the Cult of the Dragon, right? Yes. But but similar. This and... is the
4: inheritors of the first world. Mm. Oh,
0: can you talk a little bit about how the the dragons' horde uh, relates to to all this?
4: Yes, oh, it's, it's really hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this idea that dragons are are really Intricately, intricately connected to the fabric of the material plane, is sort of a, uh, I keep calling it a unified theory of dragons. That it sort of explains <laughs> a bunch of things about dragons, um, and one of the things it sort of explains is they're collecting hordes. That they are fundamentally material in nature, and they're fundamentally materialistic in a, in a metaphorical sense, right? That they collect treasure because it's material, so. Um, they're connected to the fabric of the material plane. They build layers and, and the, the magic that flows through them and connects them to the plane flows out and alters the terrain around the layers and the regional effects that are described in the Monster Manual. And the Horde is sort of a focus for that magic. That um, a, a Horde is how a dragon makes a place its lair once it stores treasure here, it's like, okay, this this is mine now. It's marking its territory in a way, I guess. Um, and then the magic flows through that and out and, and shapes the terrain to match the dragon. That's, That's so cool. It's, it's weird and kind of way out there in my head, but much clearer on the page, I think.
0: And it, and it but, makes a lot more sense than just saying, like, the dragon's like treasure. Which I'm like, why? Why do they? They're not buying anything with it. They're not using it for you know the the purpose that royalty has it. You know, in order to 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 consolidate wealth. You know, so this at least has that really nice kind of reason for why they do that and why adventurers want to go kill them and take it.
4: Yes.
1: So is that like a new? Is that new? Like this whole idea that you just described. The unifying yeah. theory
0: of, of yes. dragons.
1: Because that's like, I mean, that seems like a big thing that you were just <laughs> came up with. <laughs> <laughs> but is this like, I just want to get instead of, I need to be your echo so I can just be like, <laughs> what's going oh. on inside of James Wyatt's brain right now? Like, you're just like, were you actually trying to make the connection that Greg just said? Like, why do dragons love treasure? We yeah. need a reason here. Like why tell, what's the story? I never asked because I always just really like was always told dragons like treasure, they have hordes. Um, <laughs> but you know, if, if you're Greg, then maybe you do question these things. <laughs> and if you're James Wyatt, then you can come up with the answers to them. But is that it? was that the impetus for coming up with this? Yeah, it, So again,
4: part of this came from Ray's outline originally. Um, so I won't take credit for the whole thing. Um, but it's like, it's like we're starting from here's what we know about dragons in the worlds of D&D. They show up on every world. They're in the name of the game because they show up on every world and they're, they're super important to the kind of fantasy stories that we tell. Um, they hoard treasure. That's like number two thing that you know about dragons. They, They sleep on enormous piles of, coins and jewelry and magic items and stuff Um, like so given these these things we need to weave a narrative that that helps them all make sense so that is is kind of where all this is coming from
0: I'll argue too that I think Shelley you already are an echo of James which is why you get so excited to see him
4: (laughs) 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 so that means that we live
1: on completely different worlds (laughs) I believe that, James. (laughs) One of us is here. (laughs) I'm not going to say which one. And the other one is somewhere out there. (laughs) Somewhere. Um, One of us wrote a book about dragons. (laughs) Three or four of them. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, And also, one of us made... Or maybe it wasn't you. What's up with the beholder dragon? (laughs) That's a creepy
0: creature. Uh,
4: Yeah, so it wasn't me. Okay. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I was certainly involved in the process. Um, So a number of us did sort of an initial pass in in building the list of monsters for the book. Uh, An initial pass through dragons that have appeared in the game in, in various incarnations over the years and we sort of picked the ones that we felt like was really important to um, to revive with the gem dragons really high on that list. Um, but then we were like okay, what are some other things we want to add introduce to the game in this edition <laughs> in this uh, book. So uh, wow, I wish I knew where the idrake idea. I can't remember, you know, sort of where it came from, but so there, there's an idea that Volos Guide to Monsters talks about this in depth. That that beholders shape reality through their dreams, and um, so the the idea behind the drake is that when a beholder becomes obsessed with a dragon to the point where it starts having nightmares about this dragon, <laughs> that it creates um, this dragon like creature that is a beholder can. Uh, that uh, the idea being that this is where variant variant beholders, beholder can come from, is from the distorted dreams of beholders. So this one looks like a dragon and has a breath weapon that's its central eye ray. And Ugh. it's weird and cool. And-
1: yeah. yeah. And it it's wings. Yeah. They have the little eyeballs like their wing and eye stalks on the wings and yeah,
0: it's, to me that one's not as bad as the Elder Brain. Dragon. Oh yeah,
1: that's not a great one either.
0: Where did that one Are come you kidding? from?
1: It's fantastic. <laughs> I think we have different ideas of. The, we live of in what's different fantastic. worlds. <laughs> yeah, we're in different worlds here. In the world I'm in, that's not one that I want to encounter.
0: Was we'll that see. a similar idea of where that came from? The uh, you know uh,
4: trying to
1: imagine yeah, where that and, might come from definitely.
4: So um both of these monsters what, what they're accomplishing is is connecting other monsters in the D&D ecosystem to dragons, right? Um both of these are like okay, take aberrations, which are also a, a significant part of D&D mythology and the the worlds that we build. What's their relationship to dragons? And that comes out in in various ways. A lot of the gem dragons are really opposed to aberrations and and um, keep watch for their influence, or hunt them through the underdark. Um, but then also we've got the the eye drake and the elder brain dragon, which are um, various forms of what happens when dragons get corrupted by aberration influence, or you know draconic monsters are born from aberration imagination. So the elder brain dragon is um, a mind flare elder brain stuck on the back of a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> With tentacles going into the dragon's brain and transforming it in the same way that mind flayers uh, take their tadpoles and implant them into humanoids to make new mind flayers. It's this, a similar process Ugh. of making an elder brain dragon.
0: So there should be something that other, dra- you mentioned gen- gem dragons in particular, would be opposed to, like almost as a... Oh,
4: yeah.
3: <laughs> uh,
0: so I've, I love that as an idea for a campaign unto itself where you have to... The player characters have to align with, you know, chromatic dragons and other other perhaps evil entities to destroy a colony that's led by an elder brain dragon.
4: Yep, I like it.
0: Yeah, that's
1: inspiring.
0: I want to kill it. I know that.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like seeing a big spider on the wall, and you're like, "Oh, not gonna put I want that to out see outside." You
3: try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go after uh,
0: it. Well, we, we mentioned this a little bit, but I love the idea too of so much of this book uh, talking about the different layers and areas that each type of dragon, uh, you know, finds themselves in. Right? Like, I, I love that we, we you go through and show, like, all right, here's what a copper dragon's layer looks like. Here's what a black dragon's layer looks like, and have maps uh, convenient for d- dungeon masters to use you know, in, in a dragon centric campaign, but not really, not necessarily. You can use these maps, uh, which I believe, uh, were created by Dyson logos, correct? Yes. Um, and, uh, you can use them in, in any campaign. I love that. That's, you just basically created a a menu, uh, for, for DMS to use.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's, so I often joke about the fact that maps are my Achilles heel as a D and D writer and designer that, um, mm. Uh, if the, the more I can plunder maps from existing sources and use them in my games, uh, the happier I am. So I've made it my mission to put as many of these maps out there in the world as I, as I can facilitate, um, in order to to help people like me and working hmm. with Dyson is just a delight because, um, he's, he's super creative and, uh, steeped in d d lore. So, um, this is like the fourth book that I've worked with him where I've been able to just say, okay, so the Azorius Guild in Ravnica, their judges and lawkeepers, and their architecture looks like this. Here, give me a an map. And mm. he comes back and, and does it. So he did that for Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. And again, for the Eberron book and um, the Theros book and now Fizbans. Where Fizbans is like, okay, you know what red dragon lairs are like. Give me a red dragon lair. Um, and it's a, a great process. Um, and then we were able to get the, the freelance writers who worked on that chapter to write to the map to uh, offer description and inspiration for, for um, how to use the maps and what's in there. Um, so yeah, I think it's a fantastic adventure-building resource.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think people are going like, to... That's going to be the most... Uh probably useful part of this book where I, I read right the get-go is just flipping through and then immediately like, oh, I know what I'm doing tonight or no, I know what I'm running tonight. It's going to be, you know, the, uh, the Amethyst Dragon's Lair.
4: Yep. Oh. And then the Amethyst Dragon entry gives you suggestions for other creatures that might live near the Lair or in the Lair with the Dragon. Adventure hooks you can use to bring the characters to the Lair. Um, treasures you might find in the Lair. And lots of information to help you develop the amethyst dragon that lives there.
1: And you can you also have help in developing what's in the horde. That's right. Another very fun table. <laughs> lots lots tables. of tables. So many tables. Yes. Yes. I thought that was really fun. I had fun reading through some of, of the things that would be in a dragon's horde. I was not expecting a large noisy wind chime. But I guess I could see why they might be attracted to that.
0: <laughs> the horrors. That's awful.
4: It, it tickles when I breathe, when I snore. Adds to the music of my snores. Oh, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, I do love also how it's like, I feel like you get very inspired talking about this book. Like you can see like the wheels are turned. Like you're like, yes, I want to use this idea. I can't wait to run this or I'm going to do this. Or like you remember all the cool stuff that you put in this book because I know it's been a while since you've actually worked on it just given how books are made. But um there is – what are some of the things that you're, you are either using in your campaigns or you're excited to use it in campaigns or – think that other Dungeon Masters are going to be really inspired by?
4: Well, so, uh, like, my 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 hope for this book out in the world is that everybody who picks it up is going to come away with 20 new ideas that they didn't have before that are building off of what's in this book. Like, I described it as, as story bombs. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you're just going to be looking at one of these tables you might roll randomly on a table you might just skim down and you'd be like oh that's cool and then your brain starts going and start piecing together ideas from all over the book and come up with something cool and awesome so like I can't wait until the next time I get to go to a convention in person whenever that might be I, I want to hear 50 different stories of how people use this book in cool and exciting ways that I could never have anticipated. Um, for me personally, I'm I'm working on. Um, I want to build a series of adventures that are <laughs> that cross different worlds, take characters to dragon layers on different worlds. Like one possibility is maybe you start off in off on the world of Kryn and. Uh, Build into the dragon's lair there, and then you go off to Dragon Mountain, which is a second edition dragon adventure that could appear on any world because, again, dragons are multiversal in nature. Um, just, like, all these classic dragon layers, going to, to visit each of them or something like that. I'm not sure. I want to <laughs> build a party of characters where every character has some kind of connection to dragons. Um, you know, anything from I'm a dragon born dragon sorcerer to I'm a character from Eberron. Who's got a dragon Mark (laughs) and, Mm. and no other apparent connection to dragons, but the dragons think that's really important and interesting. So they all get pulled across many worlds to do stuff again. That's kind of a vague notion that I've been playing with for a couple of months now.
0: I love that. You know, there's a large part of, uh, this book as well that kind of just helps dungeon masters do what you just did, which was like, Oh, here's some uh, through lines to a campaign uh, that involves dragons and uh, you know, people can throw out different ideas and things like that. There's a whole part of this. This is again, more tables uh, mm. where you can come up with that type of storyline and it gives you just, you know, Hey, maybe you do something like this and maybe you do something like that. And I just love that as a, as a, as a D and D fan, because that's, the inspiration fuel uh, that, uh, you know, we crave uh, with every book that comes out. And I love that this book is just so explicit about like, maybe you could run something like this, or maybe you could run something like this.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That has become uh, a style of writing that I really enjoy. i am um, just, in fact, so the chapter five, the Dragonomicon chapter that um, covers each kind of dragon in depth, Mm-hmm. that's where uh where I brought in a team of freelance writers, and I asked them, I, I said, this is a really weird kind of writing. What I want you to do is give me a whole bunch of of really concentrated story nuggets, so your writing has got to be tight enough to fit on a table um but evocative enough to set off an idea bomb in somebody's head. yeah, um so the writers did a fantastic job um, and The beauty is that there's a diversity of voices in that chapter in particular. So uh, everything from, uh, well, like the green dragon entry in particular springs to my mind. Pascal Mm. wrote that, Um, and it makes green dragons creepier than I've ever seen them before. The (laughs) idea that a green dragon can animate the vines in its lair to take a corpse and make it stand up and start fighting you like a zombie ah yeah that, that is not the green dragon I grew up with and I love it <laughs> I love that too um, so bringing in a bunch of people to to load the story gunpowder into all the story bombs and my metaphor is breaking down but whatever
0: um, <laughs> I, I mean, I love that too. I mean, I'm also on the Green Dragon uh, entry right here, and there's Green Dragon art objects. Like, what kind of art would this dragon uh, enjoy? And even though even these are not necessarily the story bombs, uh, you know that might involve huge epic storylines. I love these smaller types of details too because they can lead to bigger uh, storylines or it can just be a really cool detail that for whatever, like like the Animating Corpses idea that got stuck in your head, one of these can be stuck in your head like the polished skull of a unicorn latticed with luminescent blooms. Why does this dragon have that unicorn? <laughs> what is this unicorn? What, you know, what does it all mean? And then, you know, you can just spin the storytelling stuff from there.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, shoot. I had a thought uh, then I was listening to you and I forgot it.
0: The baby teeth of a humanoid preserved in amber, furred with golden fungus that smells like gingerbread.
1: <laughs> Wait, okay, what? I mean there's that's so many pretty detailed than random. I love it, but and yes, there's a that's the story bombs you're talking about.
4: Exactly. Yeah, and like I, I want to in my campaigns um, like seed art objects or trinkets, various things that you might find in Dragon's Horde that are pointing you to other worlds entirely, right? Mm. It's like, this is not from here. And and how does, you, you know, you start sort of gradually having this awakening awareness that we're dealing with something that's not just a local problem, not even just local to this world, but something that's crossing the material plane, doing exciting things.
0: Right, and that just raises the stakes, especially for... Um higher level characters, right? Yeah. Where, you know, once you get to a little 15 or 16, you want to start thinking about, okay, like, right, what's next? What's bigger than the, even this dragon that we just defeated? Yep. Dragons on other
1: worlds? Mm. Okay, so if I, I'm going back to the echo. If I am <laughs> the echo of James Wyatt, yes. and we're both dragons, and ah. I swap places with you, and I can I bring some of my hoard and and then leave it with you, and then when we come back to each other's worlds, well, you are now like, I, where did I get these nail clippers from?
0: <laughs>
3: we,
1: so. <laughs>
0: It's like ah! a dragon book club, where you just kind of <laughs> come together and talk about your it's, favorite
3: parts of the dragon. I was thinking
1: like a secret <laughs> Santa or something, but no, like what could a, could dragon? Because I I'm just thinking like not I'm not a dungeon master, but like that could be a cool way to get my players to think like there's other connections to other worlds. How did this get into this horde? If it yeah, exactly. you would know that it should not be here, but can exactly. echoes do that? Can they travel? So, with- but-
4: There's no specific mechanics attached to um, dragons traveling from world to world. They have to do it the same way that, well, the the same ways that player characters might, which might involve teleportation spells or magic portals. There's a a suggestion that a dragon's lair might contain spontaneous portals to that same dragon's lair in a different world, right? Um, So what comes with the dragon depends on the magic that they're using. If they're like swapping consciousness while they're dreaming or something like that, then it would be harder to bring stuff with them, but that's a cool idea too. But yeah, I, th- that's exactly what I have in mind, right? But like, There's something in this dragon's hoard that clearly just didn't come from this world at all. It, it's coinage minted from an empire that I've never heard of before. <laughs> um, or art objects made by made in the image of gods that don't exist on this world or monsters that don't exist on this Ooh, world. Oh,
1: that would be cool. Like an actual piece of art with a visual. Yeah. Or an actual monster,
4: right? This this yes. dragon's lair is full of dark some crazy monsters. Wow. That's kind of fun.
0: Right. I love how that, like, that can bring in the meta knowledge that that some players have, right? Of like, oh mm-hmm. here's Here's a symbol that you see, and you can show it up, and someone's like, wait, that looks like from our Eberron campaign from three years ago. What? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yes. That's so fun. All right, so you mentioned uh, the Moonstone Dragon early on, uh, but that's one of the newer uh, things that's in this book that nobody has ever seen before. So wh- what can you tell us about the Moonstone Dragon?
4: Moonstone Dragon... Um it's not brand new. It appeared in the second edition, monstrous compendium annual four, <laughs> maybe three. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so it, originally it was sort of a dragon of dreams, but we've, uh, made it basically the fey wild dragon, mm. um, in contrast to fairy dragons, which never get very big or powerful. When dragons have the same four age categories that other dragons do. And, uh, Ancient Moonstone Dragons are as mighty as any other ancient dragon. So, um, the legend is that uh, a dragon fled to the Feywild to escape the destruction of the First World, and its descendants are the Moonstone Dragons. So, they're they're kind of uh, mysteriously Fey. Um, they often. Gather fae communities around them and act as figures of wisdom, but they're also mischievous and sly and fae-like. So
0: they could they could uh, serve as an arch archfey for a domain of delight, pretty theoretically, easily. yeah. Uh, but they're different than gem dragons, even though they are right. named after something right. that's a gem-like.
4: Yes, that is kind of unfortunate, but there it is.
0: <laughs> well, let's go back in time to that compendium and change it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That'll be exactly. that'll be your campaign that the two of you do as echoes of each other. <laughs>
4: <laughs> while we're at it, we need to go back to first edition and change the name of the dragon. Make it the lion drake from the get go.
0: Nice. Okay. All right. And the dra- dragonel. Isn't there a dragonel in here? There was a
4: dragonel oh, yeah. as well. Yep. And for a while, even into the layout process, I had the dragon and the dragonel on facing pages in the book. And I think it was Chris Perkins was like, "You can't do this." <laughs> so. We reverted to the fourth edition name of the dragon, the lion drake, as the default, but there's, there's a mention in there that they're also called dragons.
1: Dragons. I was surprised by the drag, the turtles, the dragon turtles, because I thought they were going to be cute, and <laughs> that one's enormous. Like the art that was in there was, it was. I was like, oh no, 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 these aren't pets. Nope. Mm-mm. no, they are. They are enormous. Um, so.
4: Greg and I have talked about this. I have a, a deep affection for dragon turtles. Uh, going back to the them and gem dragons. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> it's the old stuff. I love the old stuff. Um, so <sighs> all right. No, I'm not going go to go down this rabbit hole. Anyway, we we added added age categories for dragon turtles. Um, they're, they're bigger than dragons of their age category. Uh, normally are. So the the one in the Monster Manual is an adult, but it's gargantuan where most adults are huge. Right, right. Right. So then the ancient one is
1: gargantuan plus.
0: (laughs) Shops at the gargantuan plus dragon turtle (laughs) store.
1: These are starting to sound like, like Starbucks. Drink sizes. Venti. Yeah. Yeah.
4: It's grande. Gargantuan. (laughs) Gargantuan
1: (laughs) frappuccino.
0: Well, and speaking of very large uh, monsters, there's the great worms, uh, which are. I I think you said uh, during a panel on D and D celebration the highest challenge rating of any monster published so far in fifth edition. Is that right?
3: Maybe. I don't think I said that. Okay. Um,
4: So Echo said that. Yeah. yeah, clearly. They're they're very close up there in the high twenties. I'm checking my PDF now. Twenty six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, uh with the ancient dragon turtle at twenty-four. So yes, way up there. Uh but the, the Tarask is 30, right up there with the aspects of Bahamut and Tiamat.
0: Right. And so how, how are these great worms different than the aspects of of, of those deities?
4: So the idea behind a great worm is that it's an ancient dragon plus (laughs) like the gargantuan plus dragon turtle, but um, it might be an ancient dragon that has um, not just awakened its dragon sight and made contact with its echoes, but started to sort of absorb echoes into itself Mm. to uh, get more powerful. Um, So a lot of the dragons that have been identified as dragon gods in uh, the past of the game, um, we sort of hand waved that and said, yeah, people call them dragon gods, but really they're just uh, great worms who have such an awakened dragon sight, such an awareness of their echoes on other worlds that it's like they're operating on multiple worlds simultaneously or someone like Kronetsis, the the dragon God of fate and time or death or something. My brain is fogging. Um, in the past, we've talked about him um, making a lair in the Outlands and the Outer planes. So we talked about how Chronopsis is a, a black great worm, I think, who absorbed multiple echoes of himself to the point where he might as well be a god. I mean, when you're talking about a, a CR-27 monster, there's not a lot of gap there.
3: Right. Um,
4: uh, and he now lives in the Outer planes and, and um, does stuff related to fate and time and death or whatever. Um, but a Shardalon who who was really built up in the mythology of third and fourth edition is a, this red dragon who uh, kept himself alive from a mortal wound by implanting a, a baylor in place of his heart. Uh, he's also a, a great worm whose influence spreads across multiple worlds in the material plane. So these are ancient dragons that are built with the technology of mythic monsters that we introduced in Mythic, mythic Odysseys of Theros um, with the idea that this is... This is really the boss monster of a campaign. Um, it's a creature that can threaten an entire region, um, possibly an entire world, possibly multiple worlds because of its dragon sight. Um, and it's a heck of a fight.
0: Wow. I don't even know how, uh, you know, level 20th uh, party would, would deal with such a thing.
4: Not easily. <laughs> I have to remember Divine Intervention coming in handy <laughs> in the playtest that I ran.
0: <laughs> a few wishes will help, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, I love all of these, even just your your description of, of the different, uh, you know, cr- uh, creatures who could be considered great worms from D&D's past. You know, I started to think about, like, oh, man, what a great overarching thing for a campaign to to have this be you know the the absorption of many of these uh entities into the great worm that happens you know you might even have them witness such a thing happen in first level and then you realize that this has been a thread that has been continuing throughout uh so fun to think about all the possibilities that this book can open up for dragon themed campaigns
4: I'm totally using that idea that a dragon that the characters know gets absorbed by one of its echoes um, and maybe the, that echo is not so nice yeah,
0: right oh, it could be, it could be a friendly dragon to them, and then yeah yeah, and you have to yeah then you have to go inside the great worm to <laughs> <laughs> I like it
1: the inspiration oh, wow. is endless,
0: like inner space. You get shrunk down. <laughs> you have to go inside the <laughs> consciousness of a Can great you worm.
4: Separate out the echoes from a great. Yes, worm that's way.
0: yeah. Or or, <laughs> let, or let one of the personalities that you're more friendly with become ascendant rather than the oh. evil one. Yeah, I love it. Super fun. All right, all right. <laughs> I think I think if we were listed out all of the ideas that we came up over the course of this hour, uh, <laughs> it'd be a long list.
1: <laughs> this is what Idea this bombs. book does. Idea bombs. Yes. It is very inspiring. Just, I love it. Yes.
0: Thanks, I'm James, excited. for inspiring us.
1: Hey, my pleasure. This is and, a lot of fun. It's fun being your echo. <laughs> 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 woof, woof, woof. <laughs> woof woof woof. Woof 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 <laughs> I'm at the door. It's James Wyatt. Let me out. Let me out. <laughs> 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 too real. Too <laughs> real.
0: Awesome. Uh, Well, thanks so much, James. I can't wait till we uh, get to have these idea bombs uh, more often.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Thank you, James. Thank you.
0: Always a pleasure to talk to James. He is a wonderful thinker and creative, you know, which is mastermind.
1: He is a creative genius. And just all of the stories and lore and story bombs that are just popping around in James Wyatt's brain, which is also my brain because, you know. Because <laughs> you guys the are the guys. thing. Yep. But that is just fascinating.
0: It is fascinating. And he's uh, endlessly
1: I'm, prolific. Like, he can just keep going.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think he is the Wizard of the Coast that I have known the longest, maybe even more than I know I've known you, Shelley Mathenobel. Yeah, he came to a convention I was running in North Carolina, and oh. I talked his ear off for uh, I don't know two hours, three hours at some like meet and greet where like you were supposed to be meeting a whole bunch of people, but I just talked to James Wyatt for two hours.
1: No was, way. Yeah,
0: and it was fantastic. And I think about that every time we're on an interview here together, and I'm like, man, it's just I, it's just as easy to talk to him, uh, you know, about this stuff as it was back then. He's a great. Oh guy.
1: my god, that's so cool.
0: Yeah, fun mm. stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, get excited for Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons coming October twenty-sixth. There are two amazing covers for it. Uh you can get the alt cover through your game store. So go ahead and pre-order for that. You have an extra week uh before it is available. Uh and I'm looking forward to seeing what everybody comes and makes of it when it does drop.
1: Yes, yes. Tell us. And James said he won he would love to hear as well. That's
0: so. right. And his, I don't think we asked his Twitter handle, but it is Aquella James on Twitter. Uh, A-Q-U-E-L-A, James. And so, yeah, get, let them know all your fun stuff uh, about Elder Brain Dragons and how they are taking over the material plane. Fun. Do it. If you want to find out more stuff about D&D, you can go to DungeonsAndDragons.com or follow us on Twitter, Wizards underscore D&D also that at Instagram, like the Facebook page, download Dragon Plus to your phone to get all the information, uh, previews, interviews, uh, amazing free Dungeons & Dragons content available there, and uh, while you're at it, make sure to jump into a virtual play weekend coming uh, this weekend. You can play through some of the amazing stories and uh, adventures in Wild Beyond the Witchlight, so if you're looking for a group uh, and you want to play through that amazing content, uh, Virtual Play Weekends has got you covered. Sign up for games at uh, Yawning Portal right now and you can be slotted in to play with some expert DMs who have been studying how to play Dungeons & Dragons for years. Decades.
1: Years. Uh, Centuries. They are amazing and it's super easy to do. Just show up. And you should also subscribe to the Dungeons and Dragons newsletter.
0: Newsletter.
1: Get some of the old email from the D and the D.
0: And while you're at it, go ahead and take that survey, people. Dragon Talk survey. It's in the there show notes. Link it up and let us know how we can make this show even better for you.
1: We want to make it for you. For you. Yep. George. <laughs> <Judge.
0: laughs> uh, I'm at Greg Tito at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Follow me if you want to find out about all of the fun stuff. Pictures of my gargantuan TMT miniature, miniature <laughs> are on there, as well as uh, new episodes of our Star Trek podcast. Uh, re-engage, find out about that. Uh, Shelly, how can people find out about what you're doing?
1: Oh, You can follow me at Shelly Moo on Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. That would all be right fun. Then.
0: That's all we got for us, except for some drunky two-shoes <sighs> shenanigans. Let's do it. So she is in a cellar in the Sea Ward of Waterdeep. Uh, the garrulous grocer uh, is your location because Laryl Silverhand believes an enclave of doppelgangers is organizing there to overthrow her power in the city. And you, Junkie Two-Shoes, were sent there with Daryl Two-Shoes and the fighter Samson, all of you Harpers, uh, to deal with this problem. And uh, Junkie is at the bottom of a uh, a ladder and had gotten into a fight with three doppelgangers and Mm -hmm. uh, dodged all of their attacks quite expertly, called up to her allies, and cast Fog Cloud. Yep. So it is all a obscured visual for you in this thing you've got three doppelgangers with various weapons bladed weapons uh, that are trying to murderize you uh, what do you do next?
1: Are are my are my friends here? Yeah, Did they same, they okay, scrambled
0: down the ladder but they're like I can't see anything. Well, what do we what do we do? Where are they?
1: Okay. Can I see through my own fog cloud or is it obscured for me too? It's
0: obscured for you too.
1: Well, that's not great. So I can't, I don't know where anyone is. Can I see Daryl and Samson? If Sampson? you, uh,
0: you can see Daryl and Samson because they're kind of like within five feet of you. Um And the others, you, uh, well, actually, I guess you can see the doppelgangers. You're aware that they're near you, but it's hard for you to target them.
1: Okay. But I want to take, I want to pounce on one of those doppelgangers. Okay. Which is so, kind of-
0: Take advantage of the fact that uh, they can't see you very well, so I'll give you advantage on your pouncing.
1: Okay, is this like like I guess this might be my claws that I'm attacking with?
0: Yeah, is that what you want to do? You want to just go? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I'm just going Row! like that.
0: All right, kitty okay. attack, back legs and all.
1: Okay, here we go. But you said I have advantage.
0: Yeah, I'll yeah. give you advantage because okay, it, it's 25. hard for them to see.
1: Oh, there we go. Twenty one.
0: 21! All right, yeah. so you, you hit a doppelganger and you scratch uh, at their flesh. It It is a weird sensation because they uh, are in a shape that uh, is uh, halfling. They are actually look like halfling, but because of your amulet with amethyst eyes on an owl, you can see their true shapes. And so your claws are going through uh, flesh, and it's it's just this weird, disconcerting thing. Like, you, at one point, you think it's just the clothes and armor and leather armor of a halfling, but then at the other times, it's this weird, sallow, yeah. sagging flesh that your uh, claws are ripping through. But you do damage.
1: Well, this was like not the smartest thing for me to do. I have done one point of damage. What? This <laughs> is <laughs> right. like I have all these spells, but yet. I just chose to pounce. But in my mind, that is what I saw Drunky do. So I am being true, to her.
0: You are just angry as all get out and uh, yeah, not, not happy about it. All right. So then you attack. I'm sorry. They attack you or attempt to attack you back. And they fare much better than they did last time. Uh, oh, all right. So does a 21 hit you? Yes. Does a 19 hit you? Yes. Okay. So you take. Poop. Um. You take uh, 11 points of damage from two attacks. Oh, yeah. As they find out where you are. And these are the two that they kind of come surround you. So the one that you attacked missed you because of your uh, uh, (laughs) ferocity. uh, But the other two uh, come and attack you from the side and uh, are able to actually target you. Um, But Samson and uh, Daryl are in the fray and will be able to attack next time. Okay, good. Maybe something crazy happens. We don't know.